All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So far in our project, we've mostly spoken to people who were involved in startups that went public in the dot-com era. But as I've said many times before, that's really only part of the story of this era. I very much wanted to speak to somebody that was involved with a successful startup at the time that was acquired by a larger portal site. So I reached out to Ted Barnett, who was one of the founders of the early web calendar site, when.com, which was eventually acquired by AOL. And so in this episode, Ted and I talk about the economics and the strategic considerations of a late 90s startup that found success overnight, but was unable to scale in a way that would allow it to continue to grow on its own independently without hooking up with a larger, deeper-pocketed partner. But it turns out that Ted's career is so interesting and varied, we also got to delve into a bunch of other fascinating topics. Among them, what it was like to work at Apple in the late 80s and early 90s during the John Scully era, the pre-web quote-unquote bubble of pen computing startups, working at AOL during the height of its late 90s powers, how a company like Kodak dealt with technological disruption that came in and completely decimated its 100-year-old business. And we even get into the current prospects for virtual reality technology. Really, because this conversation with Ted paints such a well-rounded picture of a technology career lived in full, basically we recount how a young technologist can work his way up the ranks all the way to founder and CEO... I have to say, this is really one of my favorite episodes that we've done so far. I would go so far as to say that this is absolutely an essential listen for any young people out there who are starting out in the tech industry today. So, please enjoy this conversation with Ted Barnett. Ted Barnett, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. I'm glad to be here. Uh, We always like to start uh, with a little bit of background on people, even going back to... um, Were you... uh, were you a techie as a kid? Were you into computers and that sort of thing? 
Um, I was. I, I had an Atari 800 uh, and uh, that my dad got me, and I, I used to try to make my own games on it and Assembler, and uh, and I worked at an IBM Product Center in 1983. So, yeah, I was, I was into it um, pretty early. Uh, I played with a Commodore Pet in a mall with a friend. That's the first time I really played with a personal computer, and so I just liked them from the beginning and kept fussing around with them, and um, and then ultimately when I went to college, weirdly, I, I chose to be a mechanical engineer for the first year, mm-hmm. and then I realized my mistake and switched to computer engineering, and so I, I, I became an official techie then. And that was at uh, University of Michigan? It was. I actually started at Cornell, mm. uh, and then I transferred in the middle of my sophomore year in pursuit of a girlfriend who was at Michigan, mm. um, and uh, loved both schools, so I, I got into computer engineering at Cornell and then transferred into the department at Michigan as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and what then made you decide to pursue an MBA at Harvard? Um, I think when I I had worked at the, you know, although I've been kind of playing with my own computer and trying to crack games and make games and things like that, I liked programming. Um, in the summer of, I guess it was 83, uh, 82, 83, I, as I mentioned, I worked at the IBM Product Center in Cincinnati, you know, for a summer job, and I was hired to be just sort of the tech guy that helps the copier salesman explain computers to people mm, right. um, and I really enjoyed it and pretty quickly they just had me doing selling by myself uh, they didn't just bring me out to like demo stuff because they figured you know I was a credible kind of explainer of things and I and I thought this is this seems pretty cool where you can understand something technical that people are sort of scared about and put it in their own words and it just felt like an opportunity to kind of put those two together uh, as much as I liked being tech I also liked being kind of out there and the, talking to customers. And and so um, I think that stuck in the back of my head later. I, I knew that some combination of tech and business would be a, a good thing to do. Um, and so, uh, yeah, after I got out of college, I, I went I actually went to McKinsey & Company, the consulting company in New mm-hmm. York, because I thought that was sort of like a pre-MBA and I could see what, what, um, what the business world was like. And they actually, I was one of the first people they'd hired who wasn't a kind of, you know, econ major from Princeton. I was an experiment. They thought, let's get one of these computer engineers from the Midwest. And so I was brought in to, you know, see if the computer people would be helpful in, in doing business analysis. And that worked pretty well as well. I found, you know, just being analytical was helpful for, uh, you know, working on these cases. And so uh, that confirmed it. That's interesting to me. Uh, what year would that be? Um, let's see, 84, I graduated from college. So 84 to 86, I was in New York at McKinsey. So as late as 84, 85, they still think it's kind of a a weird experiment to see. Let's bring in a computer guy. Maybe there's something we can do. (laughs) They literally, I mean, everyone was like Ivy League, you know, econ um, and and philosophy majors and stuff like that, which were, you know, they're super smart uh, kids. Um, Computer people, I think, were kind of a novelty. And and the few computer people they had were doing uh, um, kind of, really SQL programming, you know, helping set up databases. They were like IT people. Uh, they weren't actually on studies. And um, so they thought, well, we'll get one of our analysts. Let's get one that's a computer person and see if it works out. And, and you know, I think they, people would tell you it did work out. They actually kept looking for engineers after that and computer engineers in particular. And they, they looked outside the Ivy League. And so I like to think I broke the mold. Mm-hmm. So how did you find your way to um, Apple? Um, let's see. So yeah, I was at business school, uh, 87 to 89 in the summer, you, you'd take a summer job of some kind. And I, 
I kind of realized, you know, I've been, I like computers and here I am in New York, uh, which is not where computers are happening. And um, I'd always been aware of the Apple II. When I had an Atari 800, it was either an Atari 800 or an Apple II. And Atari 800 felt like a better game machine was the only reason I got it. But I knew Apple was cool. And I'd read about Steve Jobs and what was going on out here. So I always had some, you know, place in my heart for for Apple in, in particular. Um, out of business school, I... Oh, so the summer, between years of business school, I, I got a summer job at Apple as a um, summer intern, and I actually worked in the sales, the K-12 education sales group, uh, helping build hypercard stacks for the sales reps so they mm-hmm, could go out mm-hmm. and show off this hypercard thing to the schools. Um, and uh, and so, so that introduced me to Cal- California. I lived in uh, near Stanford and with a bunch of friends and just thought, hey, what's the catch? It's nice and warm out here. And... Everyone's talking about computers, and I like computers, and Apple was, it was a really fun summer, and so that cemented for me, I've got to come back to this place. Um, so I you know, interviewed several places, but I really wanted to come to Silicon Valley. In 89, at business school, um, you know, it was coming out of, I guess, a small crash that happened in 87. Um, tech wasn't super obvious to most people. Most MBAs were still doing investment banking and consulting. Um, it was really the start of, you know, people started to become aware of this computer thing, and Microsoft was getting bigger and bigger, but um, it was still kind of odd for to, to come out here. Uh, there was no Internet, of course. So um, me and, and, I don't know, I think out of 800 people, probably 80 people from my business school class ultimately came out to California. Um, but at the time, we felt like pioneers. It wasn't sort of obvious. There was no rush to come out here yet. Um, and the choice was either go to Apple or Microsoft, those were the two big ones, or Oracle maybe. And um, I chose I chose Apple uh, ultimately. I, ironically, I had already chosen my job at Apple, and they had um, this is a maybe self indulgent bit of history, but they had Bill Gates call a couple people at my school that year to try to talk us into changing our minds. So mm-hmm. I got to talk to Bill Gates for, and he called me in my dorm room and said, you know, you should join Microsoft, and we're doing this thing called Windows. It's really cool, and and uh, I'd actually seen a demo. You know, I knew what Windows was, but it was, you know, it was like made out of characters, like equal signs for the, you know, horizontal. It was a hideous looking thing. And I was like, no way I would work on Windows. And mm. I, I think if they had actually booted up like Windows 386 and showed me right. how nice it could look, I might have thought differently. But I just thought they'll never catch Apple. And so thanks for calling, but I'm going Apple. And that's what I did in 89. Well, I joined I joined product management group at uh, in the Mac in the Mac team. Right. Well, right. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about because, um, so this is this is the the Scully era of of right. Apple, and I feel like that this is sort of a period of Apple's history that's sort of alighted over. You know, now that you know, it's it's all about the legend of of Steve Jobs, and so yep, history true. thinks that as soon as he left, that Apple went downhill. But actually. In in my memory, you know, the late '80s is actually the golden era of of the Macintosh. Um, Apple oh, yeah. is still doing a lot of innovative things. I mean, they have the premier GUI system for about five years before Windows comes out comes along and, and starts to compete. But so, it, just yeah. just for the purposes of history, talk talk to me about um, what Apple was like in in this era. From you were there, yeah, from... it, was, it was. So I was there '80. Uh, let's see. Um... 89 to 92. Mm-hmm. So this was, as you mentioned, kind of after and before Steve Jobs. He was at, I think, Next at the time. Um, and um, and so, yeah, it still felt exciting. Uh, there was a lot of momentum. Uh, you know, there were a lot of folks who'd been there with Steve Jobs during the 
Macintosh era, and, and people felt excited about what we were doing. It was a little heartbreaking, though, because you felt like this is a better mousetrap for sure, the Macintosh. And the Mac 2 had just come out. So we had a color Macintosh, first of all, and, and felt like we have nothing to apologize against Windows, but Microsoft dominated everything. I mean, Apple was just tiny percent of desktops, and, and, uh, and you know, it really kind of shook my faith, like, hey, if you build a better product, it doesn't mean people will beat a path to your door. Um, uh, so it, it felt, it felt, we felt beleaguered a little bit. I felt like, you know, we had a good product, but Microsoft was just sort of taking over the world. It felt like the 1984 commercial was still happening. Um, and, uh, and then as far as leadership, yeah, like, yeah, I think people trusted John, at least in the, tr down in the troops level, it seemed like John Scully knew what he was doing as a business person. We were, we were very obsessed with margins and trying to make sure that, you know, the company was making a lot of money for the fewer devices it was selling, we maintained high margins. So it was kind of like, you felt like you were BMW or something, you know, the high-end company. Um, and, and I was excited to be, I was actually on the 2FX, which was a super high-end 40 megahertz um, uh, personal computer version of the, of the Mac 2. Um, and so that was like the high-end. And I think it was, I think the SRP, the price of the unit itself was $9,000 just, yeah, yeah. just for the box. No <laughs> right. monitor. I think that maybe comes with a video card. Um, but, you know, it felt miraculous at the time. It could run QuickTime, and you actually saw movies on your screen and a little tiny postage stamp window. And Anyway, it felt like cool things were happening, but we were losing. We did have this feeling of we're going to the high end. We're building products for the next bench. You know, these are Macs that uh, the engineers would like to have, but not normal people. Uh, and the prices were going up. And, and so there was an effort, and it was really led, I think, more by the engineers, some of the engineers, people... Like uh, uh, I recall, Paul Baker and others that were had spearheaded. Let's do a low-end Mac inside inside uh, Apple here. See what we can do. The, the project was LC for low-cost Mac, um, and and it, it kind of uh, almost skunkworks formed to build this thing. And it, as my understanding of the history is, they kind of showed it to John Scully, and and then he's like, Hey, we have a low-end strategy now. <laughs> it's not like from the top we were told figure out how to make cheaper Macs, but the team itself, because Apple has a lot of people who really, I think, care about customers and have their own, you know, mission, uh, whatever the management's saying, they thought, we got to make a low-end Mac. So there was the LC, the, the 2SI, and the Mac Classic. That was the three low-end Macs. So I was there as that was getting built. I was just a sort of, you know, assistant product manager to start out, but um, I worked on the 2SI and the LC2 and um, so it felt like, hey, we've now we're, we're going to turn things around. That felt exciting, and Scully made, made big news with with the new low-end Macs. And um, but I, I guess I'd say, as far as like how it felt inside, mm -hmm. it didn't feel like we were innovating radically. You know, like really new. We were, we were living off something we'd already created, but there was a lot of legroom uh, for the Macintosh. In other words, color, high-end, low-end. Um, it didn't feel like we were doing something brand new. We were doing some great things with what, what we had, um, and and uh, you know you weren't you weren't inspired by the technical leadership, but but the company felt you know competent and solid, and we're moving forward. Um, and uh, uh, I, I guess the one skunk works that was starting was Newton. Right. Um, I had several friends on the Newton project, including two that joined me later at WEN. Um, so there was that. That there was that still that glimmer of hope that we could disrupt Microsoft and 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 with a whole new kind of computer. Um, but otherwise, it felt you know like Microsoft was winning and we were doing the best we could. 
Well, that, that's a perfect segue into a, another thing that I, I hope you can uh, comment on a lot is um, this actually was inspired. Uh, Mark Andreessen uh, and I were tweeting back and forth about this last month about how right before the Internet, there was sort of this mini bubble in handheld computing and pen based oh, yeah. computing of which yeah. the Newton was a part of. And then the, the next company that you're with, uh, EO, um, is also a part of this. So. And and actually, it after we we tweeted about it, it made me think. So many people that I've spoken to were involved in in handheld and pen based startups at this period. So um, talk about that. Like, what was this? What was the sense that in the early '90s, even that that handheld computing was going to be the next big thing? Yeah, I'd say uh, to to a point you just uh, inferred there is implied is a lot of. A lot of interesting people were in pen computing or can tell you they spent a couple years in it. And an observation I've made is whenever there is some new exciting platform that has some legs and a lot of things are getting reinvented, it ends up re- you end up recruiting a lot of really good people into those categories. And so, you know, the young hotshots that want to do the new thing end up working on pen computers or maybe it's VR now or, or something something that feels, you know, like it's got potential uh, and, and pens felt like that too. Everyone who wanted to do something really radical was working on that. If you were back on you know regular computers, that felt like yesterday's news. And it, I, I think the the evangelical hope here was that we could, like I said, disrupt Microsoft by kind of doing an end run around them and mm. building a whole new platform because all they're good at is copying. Was the feeling right? Mm-hmm. They just copy my, my Apple stuff. So if we go do something completely radical, they won't know what how to copy it because um, it'll be so new. Um, and so that's, I think that was the genesis of General Magic, which was a lot of some of the best engineers from Apple and elsewhere went to General Magic. Um, I had a lot of friends there, and if you follow the history of folks from General Magic, you'll see a whole bunch of interesting characters. That was one leg of it. Um, uh, Newton was going on inside Apple and had some great people on it. Um, and and then EO and Go was right. just felt like a, yeah, its, its own standalone effort. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I joined there because some people I knew from Apple had gone to join EO, and I'd been a hardware product manager, so I thought this is a logical step for me. I could work on this new kind of hardware. Um, and it was funded by Kleiner Perkins, and AT&T was behind well, it. Well, right. It, it wasn't, it felt a, invincible. wasn't it a spin-out of Go? Yes, it was. Yeah, EO itself was a spin-out. I guess I think of the whole thing as sort of right. one effort. You know, there was Go at EO, and then I think for tactical reasons they decided we better split off the hardware otherwise no one will license our software because we're competing with our own hardware vendors well and and, Um, um, if you don't mind just just for our listeners um just a little background on eo and go and and jerry kaplan and how this was really one of the biggest startups probably the biggest startup of the pre-web 90s essentially yeah and it's i recommend everyone read the book startup by jerry kaplan it's it's a a good um you know pretty confessional uh, description of all the things that, that he went through in, in putting uh, that startup together. Um, yeah, Go was an ambitious attempt to do an object-oriented operating system where the pen was the only interface. There's no uh, keyboard. Um, uh, he had kind of a science background. Uh, he and a team thought, well, we can crack the handwriting recognition problem. Uh, it, it's reached the point. It, it's good enough that it's it's viable. I guess the analogy would be like, you know, in VR right now, people are saying, is it fast enough that it won't make you nauseous? Well, back then it was, you know, is the pen good enough that you can actually write, you know, your notes on it? Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, everyone felt like we were close enough to pull it off. I mean, a little side note, I think the, the fact is we were 
off by five years or so, or actually maybe more for, right. for hand, proper handwriting recognition. It, it was too ambitious. It was like trying to do something years ahead of its time. Uh, and, and even though the handwriting, I think the recognition was you know, 92% accurate or something per letter or per word, but that means you're making errors in you know, almost every paragraph when you actually add it up because there's a lot of letters and words in a paragraph. And so that gets pretty frustrating. It, it never, the handwriting never really worked well enough to make that the primary input. Um, but we were also, you know, kind of excited about the potential and figured, well, we'll solve that problem. You know, Moore's Law will help us out, and that will go away. But we were, it's a, that's a good example, but you can get ahead of yourself even as fast as technology moves. You can do something, start on something that just it isn't time for it yet. And the EO was a, um, uh, I think it was about $2,500 a unit uh, for the EO440, which was the low-end device. Um, and it was a, you know, a little portable tablet it would have been it'd be called a tablet now it's about the size of an iPad mini um, but it had a you could snap on a cellular CDMA radio to it oh really uh, and fax to and from the device the, 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 the customer scenario that probably would have worked if we just focused on it was like sales reps out in the field taking orders or you know people checking utility lines uh, kind of a corporate sale um, whether you could, you know, mark something up and then fax it or send it, you could actually send emails as well. Are, are um, those? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, and I don't. I this is just a gut guess, but are those what we used to see in the '90s? The people using in, on the trading floor of Wall Street were those EOs? No, it wasn't. Uh, they wish we'd gotten that far. <laughs> uh, who would that have been? Uh, I can't even remember the name of the company. There were more specialized companies that okay. were doing just wireless tablets, and that would have been a better strategy. You didn't see many EOs, unfortunately. Um, you can look them up on, you know, on you can Google them and you'll see they're kind of funny looking. They had these ears on either side of it that sort of that was designed by Frog Design. And, and, you know, it had a playful look to it. It was designed to be a consumer product. It was sort of, you know, suggesting that it had ears and could hear you and send things. And um, But I think ultimately it was unfortunately neither fish nor fowl. It was too expensive for the average consumer and too complex, uh, and too, yeah, too expensive and too complex. And then for the for the corporate user, it wasn't probably like rugged enough and you know battle hardened because it was designed to be uh, for consumers. So it didn't work out, um, and it was a good lesson for me because I thought I learned, hey, it doesn't matter if really smart people from Kleiner Perkins and AT and T and all these people are behind something, it can still fail, uh, and. I was the one pitching the, the EO to the because I was the head of product management for for hardware. They had me go talk to Gartner Group and others, and I remember pitching it specifically to Gartner Group, and they just made me feel like an idiot. <laughs> like this thing, who's going to buy this? And well, it's way too much money. And have you thought about this and that? And they just had a lot of really smart questions that just made me feel like an idiot uh, and, and question what I was doing. Um, and they were right. Um, so kind of you, you drink your own Kool-Aid when you're working on something and you're surrounded by other people who are working on it. and It's a technical feat, but it could still not be addressing anything customers really needed. So, so that was the EO saga. EO ultimately, let's see, I guess EO got reabsorbed into Go, and then I don't know what happened to Go ultimately. Did Go, I think they went bankrupt, if I remember they correctly. totally shut down. Yeah, yeah. I, was, yeah. I, I after Not long after my Gartner Group demo, I like it, it just... I just killed my faith in the whole thing. I was I was kind of an early person to leave EO. Um, I just thought this isn't going to work, and it's not like everyone was leaving at the time. I felt a little guilty doing it, but I thought 
these people all really think this is going to work, and I don't believe it anymore. I can't well, be a good leader here. You know, I'm 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 very fascinated with with um, technologies that are a little too soon. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 obviously, with the benefit of history and retrospect, we can see that well, the 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 infrastructure wasn't in place. I mean, you're starting to do handhelds before even the web is taking off, and there's not the the cellular data networks. Obviously, we can see now having a, a computer in your pocket is is beneficial in so many ways, but you didn't have you didn't have the pieces in place that yeah. made it make sense you know and and i always say that you know one of the reasons why social didn't take off in web 1.0 was cuz there weren't a lot of digital cameras around yet you know so yeah. it's funny yeah. the little things yeah. that aren't in place yet and makes a technology too early right there were you know it was good for point to point communication i could call your device and fax you something mm. but there was no always on network that i felt i could just tap into there was no internet um, and yeah, it was, I, the joke I make to, you know, young people when they're asking about startups and tech, cause I think it's all about timing is you could have built a VCR in like 1955, uh, technically probably the feat was possible, but right. it probably would have cost $30,000 and been, you know, four feet high. And it wouldn't have been worth making a VCR for consumers in 1955. Right. Eventually it made sense. And so uh, just because you can think of something and you you can picture it and you know it's technically possible doesn't mean it's time to do it yet, and and that was the case here. It was just too early. And we I remember we made we kind of made fun of the Palm guys, um, uh, Jeff Hawkins. They were going around saying, well, you need to use this graffiti handwriting thing that we came up with. Mm-hmm. And we're like, no way, people are going to change their handwriting. You know, we're going right. to figure out handwriting recognition. Well, he was right. That was a pragmatic solution to a real problem. He could see it wasn't getting better fast enough. You're either going to adapt or this isn't going to work at all. And he was right. And so the, what what we saw happen, what looked like the success of that category, because General Magic failed, Newton was shut down, and EO shut down, was Palm. Palm Pilot was everywhere suddenly. And that was that felt like the rebirth of pen computing mm-hmm. um, without, you know, until Handspring or so, it didn't really even have the cellular connection. But so it at least felt vindicated, hey, this category was happening, but not like we thought it would, you know, came out of kind of left field with this relatively small company. Right. Well, okay, so you say that um, you, you leave EO a little early, and I believe the next place you go is, is PF Magic, where you're doing um, uh, game, yeah. gaming products, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was, go yeah, ahead. I was, just quickly there, I, I, was a, I already liked games, as I mentioned, and, and played a lot of games, and so the chance to work, uh, I thought, it's time for me to get into software. I've been in hardware too long, even though I'm really a software engineer. Um, it was just an exciting place at Apple at the time. I Hardware seemed to dominate the world of computers for a while when computers were new, it seemed to me. It was all about the hardware, and eventually it became all about the software, and I was feeling that, like, it doesn't matter. There's all these gadgets. I did what matters is the software. So so I, uh, John Skull, who had been at Apple, uh, had co-founded PF Magic uh, with some former game company folks, and and I thought this will be a great chance to learn software and, and become a producer and, and learn games. And so interview there and, and joined as a, actually had to take a, you know, I was a, I was director of product management, EO, and there I went to becoming an assistant producer working for a guy who was five years younger than me. And mm-hmm. it was kind of um, another thing I tell people come to Silicon Valley is that it really is a meritocracy. If you trust yourself, you'll, you'll find your position again. So don't worry about doing laterally even downward moves to get into something you're excited about because because pretty quickly I was running the studio there, uh, you know, that they could see I was a good manager and, and I got to do exciting things. But I spent a year, you know, feeling like a 
like someone's secretary, you know. Um, but it was great. I, I learned all about games and and and, and software making, and um, we, we were making Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis games, and um, we had a game called Balls that was a 3D fighting game um, that did really well. And then more importantly, we, we made something called Dogs and Cats. They're like arch, they're virtual early virtual life before Tomagotchis. It was a little mm-hmm. little creature that lived on your computer, and they're still selling from Ubisoft. They bought the license. And, so it was it was a great place to work. Um, I was there till '96. Right, and so then '96 is when you 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 join your first um, web company. Yeah, then I uh, while I was at PF Magic, uh, a smart uh, engineer there, Joel Dubner, showed me the internet one day. He like took me in his office. So you got to see this thing because I'd been running a first class BBS out of my house just to try because I knew what BBSs were yep, and yep. I just wanted to play with it and. And I love that, you know, like four people would call my house every night and log into my system and look up game prices, or I forget what I was even posting there. Um, and this friend showed me, I think, uh, Spyglass or some early browser, and I was like, wow, this will blow away the DBSs for mm-hmm, sure. And mm-hmm. um, and so I got excited about it, kept playing with it, got my own website up by 95 or something, um, uh, and you know, watched what was happening with Netscape. And in 96, my, my first child was born, uh, Olivia and I, um, I was losing faith in PF Magic. We we were trying to do a really ambitious game. There was the management team wasn't super coherent or you know c- together. Um, it was kind of like we were working on good products, but we weren't w- running ourselves super well. Whereas EO, I like to say we um, it was well run, but we had a bad idea. <laughs> uh, in this case, we just you know it wasn't the company wasn't didn't feel super functional and i it's not a, i realized later that's not uncommon in small companies a lot of struggles and personalities and all that sort of thing but um it was getting in the way of what we were doing and i was really excited about the internet and this didn't seem like it was going anywhere so i left to start a consulting firm a friend was was doing an internet like startup um and uh, called netit and uh he hired me as a consultant and that let me quit my day job and and start consulting and that was when I started uh, what became um, Active Site. Active Site, yes. <laughs> Active Site. Um, and I, I called up James Joaquin, who was a pro- product manager on Newton at Apple, uh, and Tony Espinoza, uh, who worked with him at Apple. Um, the two of them had been there. I think at the time they were Diamond Multimedia. They had joined there to do graphics cards. Um, but they were ready to do some Internet thing, too. And a guy did- named Joe Beninato, uh, who I had met while interviewing producers at PF Magic. So uh, they were all, all four of us were product managers, and my idea was we will be a consulting company made up of product managers, and our tagline was, your website needs a product manager, because websites were being built. Early websites was typically some poor guy in IT was being told what to do by someone in marketing who didn't know anything about technology and said, we need one of these website things. Mm-hmm. And they were awful, and you know, brochureware. And uh, we we knew enough about you know you could actually bring up custom, uh, product data, like have a database-driven website. And that's why we call it Active Site. Like your website will be active; it's not just a static thing. Um, so so we started a consulting company, and our goal, which I recommend to everyone doing startups, uh, is you know to get a bunch of friends working together. First of all, going to the same office every day. Um, um, earning enough money to to uh, keep off the streets, but getting to see what customers want in hopes of starting a company that addresses their needs. And so that was our dream: is that we'll work for a bunch of clients, and if we see a pattern of everyone needs this or that, then we'll raise money and start a company. So it was from the beginning intended to be a startup, not a consulting company. Um, 
um, and so that's what we did. We we did projects for Bank of America and Microsoft and Netscape, actually, uh, just you know people that we knew that wanted exactly what we were hire, hiring ourselves out for, and mm-hmm. and so we did that for two years. And while we were doing it, we would every once in a while come up with an idea, and then we'd pitch it to VC friends, you know, that were you know kind of our age, junior mm-hmm. VCs, and just say, hey, is this a dumb idea? And most of them were. Uh, and, do you, Do you uh, remember any of the any of the? Dumb yeah, ones? we had um, uh, one was radar software, which was not a dumb idea actually. It, it's still not time for it though. But we thought you could we should automate using the internet and web and intranet automate the product development process. So mm. you can so engineers could make their own estimates of how long things will take, and that'll all bubble up into a schedule instead of this game where we you know product management makes a. Gantt chart and forces it on everybody. This will be like bottoms up. And wow, anyway, that um, is a good idea. Yeah, there are still things. So there are things trying to trying to address that now. Um, but that was a lot to chew off, to bite off at the time. Um, we just decided that was a little too early, and our hearts weren't quite in it. Um, we like consumer stuff a little more. Another one was we wanted to do property management software for people in their apartment buildings. You know, you could. You, we thought you could log into a web page and say, right, "Hey, my right. radiator's out" or something, and they would come fix your house and. Then we, re- we we started visiting real estate offices and realized like they don't even have computers in their offices. How are they going to even answer the calls from anybody? Mm. Um, and so I don't know, we had some other ideas. And then I had built uh, so when.com. The origin of the idea was maybe two years earlier when I was fussing around with um, the internet at, at, in '95 or so. Um, I had built a Visual Basic app just for my friends, a little app you could download. And it had a little calendar widget in it, and you could. Uh, the idea was, we'll have way more fun on weekends if we just had a plan, you know, because otherwise Friday arrives and it's like, what do we do? Let's see a movie. But if you have a calendar, you could say, what if we all went, you know, to Napa three weeks from now and have a bunch of ideas, and people could sort of sign up for them, like a shared calendar. Right, um, right. And so this Visual Basic app, I I distributed it to like six or seven friends. I bet I think nobody really used it at all. It was just too hard to install and. The interface was fine, but it, it just, you know, the clumsiness of getting online, dialing up your dial-up connection to connect and see what everyone else was doing wasn't compelling enough, but it did whet my appetite that, well, technically this works. I can get all of us on one shared calendar. And um, and then a, a, a smart friend of mine, a guy named Javier Rojas, was um, doing uh, mergers and acquisition work at uh, Kennett uh, Partners. Um, I don't know, you know, the no, I'm sorry, Broadview Associates. And so he was paying attention to what was going on. The Internet was heating up, and he was seeing companies getting bought. And he was always my kind of canary in the coal mine. If I had an idea, if, if he didn't like it, then I would move on. And uh, I remember he kind of one day said, like, you know that calendar thing you were playing with a few years ago? I think there's something, you know, this calendar category might work. And I'd been thinking about it already because I saw Rocket Mail and Hotmail mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. You know, these web-based mail services and it occurred to me the Internet is just like a big LAN. We're all suddenly connected on a, a, a local area network, a wide area network. So what do people do on LANs? They send emails back and forth because I'd been using Apple Link and Apple and other email services, so I knew that was a big deal. But the other shared thing is a calendar. So it seemed like, well, that will move to the web too. And when that moves to the Internet, what would that look like? And that's where I started thinking, well, it will be social, and you'll be able to say, you know, I like – I want to follow Radiohead, uh, the 49ers, the America's Cup, whatever your interests are. And if events were happening in those categories, they would just show up on your calendar as ideas. 
in addition to which you could make your own like soccer scat calendar for the kids and work calendar and whatever you wanted and they'd all be they'd exist in like layers and you could turn the layers on and off um, and so I built a prototype of that in front page Microsoft's web oh, development wow. tool yeah, yeah. at the time just to show my friends my my the other three guys at, at active site and they liked it they liked it immediately too like oh this be, this could be cool um, and so that was our prototype we used to start pitching, we pitched that to some friend VCs again, and they were like, "Oh, this is interesting," and enough to make us think this is the one we should do this. Uh, it also felt like, yeah, it just felt like a, a, a tractable problem, you know, just a software problem. Um, this is this is a calendar that would do something different from your day runner or Outlook because uh, it will be a social calendar. So, so we. Um, Started taking that around. Actually, made a pitch out of it in PowerPoint. Uh, uh, started showing to folks and got enough interest that I think the first. Well, now I could tell you kind of a, this was a startup steps, I guess. Quickly, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. We um, somebody told us uh, that you should get a good lawyer. First of all, that's they're like gatekeepers in Silicon Valley, and this is what 98, 97, 98. Um, and so we were introduced to Jim Brock who was the kind of founding attorney for Yahoo. Uh, he'd been on, and he was involved in the Yahoo management team. And, you know, young guy with Venture Law, which was a brand new firm uh, that was designed to help startups. And he was a godsend. He, you know, he kind of, he, you basically first have to pitch yourself to the lawyers to get them to take you on. And if you get a good lawyer, then they know the VCs. And so that was a big step for us. Jim liked what we were doing, got excited about it. Um, and then, you know, start advising, here's how you need to set yourselves up and here's how much money you need to raise. And, you know, I, I knew how to do all the math, but he was just a good guide as to what was normal in the world of startups. And, um, and so we started pitching and, you know, that part was actually pretty difficult. We, you know, to us, it seemed obvious, like these calendars are going to be the next big thing. And it's just a perfect thing for the internet. But, you know, when we went to pitch it, people had objections like, hey, everyone already has a day runner or, Everyone's already using their Outlook calendar at work. Why would they use another calendar? Right, right. Uh, they don't need it. Just I imagine like probably the email guys got the same objection. Um, but we were convinced there was room for some other calendar, if nothing else, you know, for your mom or, you know, uh, friends that aren't uh, necessarily using it at work or don't have a work calendar. They could use this thing. Um, but anyway, you know, got a lot of no's. I mean, we probably got 15 no's. Uh, polite no's. Actually, you never get a no, of course. You get a, that's great, really interesting. Why don't you come back later? Right. You'll hear from uh, us, yeah. Yeah, damning with faint praise. And that was, a good. again, good to have Jim with us because he'd be like, that was a no. <laughs> um, so, uh, but then we finally met uh, um, Neil Weintraut of 21st Century Internet Venture Partners. Um, he'd been like an investment banker and, I don't know, he was in the military. He was an interesting guy, real intellectual um, and he got it immediately. Like it was like an idea he'd already had. You know, calendars will be on the big on the web. So it was like a meeting of the minds when we pitched him. Um, and he he asked us a ton of tough questions and made us come back a couple times. So it was he didn't make it easy, but in the end he agreed to invest. And they put in 1.5 million, and I think 3 million pre-money, which sounds tiny now, but mm-hmm. back then that was incredible to us. Um, and so we gave away a third of the company to. Uh, have 21st century internet partners invest. I don't, I, we had a few small angels, um, and, uh, and they, Neil wasn't on the board. It was a guy named Peter Zevelman uh, who joined, but um, that that got us going. That got us enough money to say we're a real company and incorporate and start hiring engineers. We moved out of. We had a little 
uh, office on Fremont Street in San Francisco near Harrison that's now been torn down for giant apartment buildings. Um, but we moved out of there and moved. We decided we needed to move to Redwood City because that's where the engineers were, or just get down the peninsula. Back then, there, it wasn't cool to live in San Francisco. San Francisco was right, like all right. finance, and people were commuting into San Francisco from the suburbs, uh, uh, but but not engineer. Engineers didn't live here. Right, cool. and, and they and all the, lived in Mountain View. In the dot com era, that's a, an interesting point. Um, in the nineties, San Francisco did not necessarily have the strong startup scene. That was all down down the peninsula. Not at all. No yeah. way. There, you just it was weird to have a tech startup here. I'd have trouble counting, you know, thinking of any at all. Uh, and when I would drive down to Apple, because I lived in San Francisco the whole time, I just wanted to be in the city, and I drove all the way to Apple for work. Uh, it was, it was, people were commuting into the city for finance jobs, um, but mostly there wasn't much traffic on 280 either way, and you know, now it's completely different. But anyway, back then it was, it was kind of a matter of survival. If you wanted to hire engineers, you had to be on the peninsula. And I meant I was going to have to commute at 45 minutes every day each way, but whatever. Uh, we agreed to do it, and we got an office near downtown Redwood City, um, and, and and very quickly hired a whole bunch of engineers. We we knew we were doing this calendar problem had some you know large data set kind of issues, so we found people that knew how to do lots of text analysis to look for patterns in in, in you know calendar appointments and feeds. Uh, people from Resumix and Oracle and uh, places like that, and uh, and it, everything was written in C++. Uh, we had to buy our own hardware and, it, and set up a rack at Global Center. Uh, there was no cloud, right. um, and and there was no real middle tier that we trusted. And I, I, a decision we made that I think was a good one, and sometimes still is a good one, is um, it, it, is to build our own stack for, for this purpose. We, there were other p- people that just kind of built things in PHP or Perl and, and used other tools that were out there. So again, there was not much open source either. Um, but they built sort of a hack that barely worked, figuring, oh, we'll fix this later. And and then, as you know, people usually, you don't get around to fixing it later. Uh, you end up stuck with it. And we decided from the beginning, let's make sure this thing is simple and scales and one of the problems we had pitching was some of the VCs were like, well, it should sync with my Palm Pilot because they all had Palm Pilots then. And, of course, if it's a calendar, it needs to sync with this and sync mm-hmm. with that. And although we love that feature, we knew, like, that's just for the VCs. Regular people don't have Palm Pilots yet, and we're just going to do this one thing. And I'm really glad we did. Some of our competitors tried to do lots more and got you know caught up in their own underwear. But we just made a very simple, scalable calendar and um, – What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Just to, to, to interrupt you real quick, um, just for the context, this is early 1998, right? Yes. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and that's important because, as we'll see, um, this is a very compressed period of time that we're going to be talking about right here. About yeah, We were acquired one day short of our one-year anniversary exactly. from incorporating. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So, so yeah, it was, it was very quick. We were, we'd done lots of product development ourselves before and built websites for people. So we knew how to do things kind of quickly and get really organized. And, and I, we, we were lucky enough to find really smart engineers. And uh, so we each kind of drew straws to pick our roles. There were four of us. I had the most gray hair, so I got to be CEO, um, and, and James Joaquin, uh, although he'd done lots of product management himself, chose to be, uh, signed up to be the uh, head of BizDev because he was really good with partners. Tony decided to be head of product, um, and Joe was head of marketing. So any one of us probably could have done the other jo- other's job, but that's how we set things up. Um, and, and we were, uh, you know... I think it was nice. One, one thing on reflection for me it was it was nice to have a, a decent sized team like that. To have three or four people, like two, could be kind of lonely. One is really lonely, but with four people, we could get together. We knew we had an issue. We debate it, um, and then we trusted each other enough that you know I could just say, okay, let's make this decision if we're not able to vote on it, and uh, we moved very quickly. So um, we each took our various tasks and ran as fast as we could. I think within six months or so, we had it up and running and pretty good. I mean, we had it in three months. We had something, but something we could actually show, you know, put uh, put live maybe as early as six months from starting. Uh, and so we launched our own version of it, just when.com and had our cool logo. And and, and I guess this is kind of arrogance of youth and, and a very common thing in the Internet is you think, well, if, especially if you're a product person, this is such a great thing. We're just going to put it up there. It's just going to spread like wildfire, you know. It's gonna, I, you know what? Use this. I'm so glad you said that because my my question that I'm curious about, you know, now when a when a a new app or a, or a new startup, you know, launches, there's this whole infrastructure of tech media and tech blogs and then there's right. pro- product hunt and and hacker news and all that stuff. So yeah, in 1998 you have this cool new app, this cool new product. Uh how do you get the word out there? Yeah, it was, you know, we did hire we hired a PR firm uh, which was helpful, but there were, you couldn't really buy banner ads of, with any productivity or, you know, billboards or anything. People were starting to buy billboards, but, uh, you know, we knew our customers, they're going to read about this in, you know, Business Week or something or, or even, you know, um, uh, Time Magazine or something. It's something for consumers who want to do something on the Internet and, and have a calendar to track. Again, we thought of the soccer teams and, and all those nightmares of trying to coordinate kind of the, the beleaguered mom who's trying to manage everyone's calendars. And um, and so that was our kind of target customer. And, yeah, so what we had to do then, and I think still do to some extent, is find the influencers, get them excited about it, and 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 then try to turn it into a consumer story, which to begin with, it was a tech story. Look, now people are doing calendars on the Internet because it was always like, look at this new thing on the Internet. And so we were in the, in the industry standard. I don't know if you remember that magazine. Oh, uh, absolutely, yes. It was a cool magazine. There was Upside and Industry Standard. I think we were in an industry standard and covered us nicely. Um, Red Herring we did a great piece on us. And so we got the industry coverage because we're like sort of a logical thing to do, Hotmail and Rocketmail. I think Hotmail got acquired right while we were building our product for $400 million. So that got a lot of people's attention. Like, right. like oh, these, these services are a big deal. Um, and then they were looking for the next best thing, and we were ready. We were just kind of right there at that time. It was a good example where we were early, six months earlier, but now we were like right on schedule because the world started saying, "Okay, 
we all bought all the email companies. Microsoft bought Hotmail, Yahoo bought Rocket Mail. Uh, each one of them bought something. Um, well, could I let me let me interrupt you there because sure. I do I do want to get into that. Um, but I I just two again context questions would be first of all. Who who are your competitors at this point? Because as we're going to talk yeah. about, I mean, obviously Yahoo has eventually a calendar component. You yeah. know, uh, all the all the portals did. So who who else out there was doing similar things? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, when we first started, I, you know, I thought uh, I just thought of this. No one else has, and, and there was, and then I, I started googling at the time. It was AltaVista Ing, I think, um, right. and I found WebCal was out there, and they had not yet been acquired by Yahoo, but it was exactly the same idea in the sense of that it was like social calendar, web-based. I think it even had some sort of events thing, but it wasn't very slick. It looked kind of handmade like a, you know, like it was. Uh, and, but, but, it, but it was up and running, and it was probably up six months before we were. Um, and so I knew we had competitors. Uh, that was the only one that we kind of worried about. I think was there, um, then, then there was something called Jump that started, mm-hmm. uh, which was later acquired by Microsoft, uh, a bunch of smart people, uh, his name, Bill, um, he'll come back to me, um, a guy who's a very successful VC now, uh, started Jump, um, and, and maybe two or three other smaller ones, but there weren't, there, there weren't a whole bunch of big ones. It just, uh, I'd say six months into it, right as we were ready to launch, there were, there were probably 10 of them, you know, varying sizes. Uh-huh. Uh, and so suddenly it felt crowded. Um, but we did have the feeling of like, we built a more scalable one. Ours is more professional looking. We felt good about what we were doing, but it was still scary because we thought there only this is a musical chair scenario. Every portal is going to partner with. We didn't think necessarily acquire them, but at least partner with them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, Yahoo did buy WebCal kind of early and preemptively um, for not that much money, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, then that so we were at that same time then talking to Infoseek and Netscape and. Uh, we were even talking to Franklin Day Planner people. Wow! Because um, they, you know, we were like, you need to have a tech strategy of some kind, and they were cool. They they were smart enough to meet with us, but they didn't bite uh, at all. Uh, but we were trying. You know, anyone that might care about a calendar, we were talking to. Well, and um, uh, 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 one more yeah. time, an interruption. Just one more context question, and then we'll get into all that. Um, sure. What what was your uptake in terms of um, when when you go live, um, yeah. acquiring yeah. users and that sort of thing? Good question. Um, I think we got. <laughs> I have history here somewhere, but I think we just got to maybe a couple hundred thousand registered users on our own, like hanging our own shingle out. And it was, you know, that felt exciting on the one hand, but it plateaued fairly quickly. And we're like, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't going to be 10 million users. Mm. Back then, I guess a million would be a lot. And and we felt good about our numbers, but I was doing the math, of course, and I built the models. And I was like, well, if if we ever do do advertising, this isn't enough users to, Mm. you know, pay for two engineers. Um, And... And so uh, basically by hanging our own shingle out, we only got so far with all the PR we got and everything. Mm-hmm. It, and and, and uh, this is to credit to the VCs. Um, I should uh, quickly digress to say that we, things were going pretty well. We were getting partnership conversations. We had a working version 1.0 up. I think that's when we started talking to Benchmark again, who we had talked to in the first round, and they'd passed. But they uh, were much more interested now. And um, ultimately decided to invest. I think they put in, the round was like $6 million at 14 pre, something like that. Um, they put in the bulk of it, uh, and Kevin Harvey joined our board, and he was wonderful. Uh, Peter was great too, but, but Harvey, Kevin Harvey was uh, just a really good coach for us. And from the beginning, 
he was saying you need to get distribution. I, I guess I'd say Peter was starting to say was saying the same thing, which is you need to get a partner and and have other people you know OEM your product so that uh, uh, it'll be the calendar for InfoSeek and they right. can put their own logo on it and you'll have a powered by when thing at the bottom and you'll share revenue. And I have to say, product person that I am, that seemed like anathema. I'd heard many stories of like, and having been a consultant. The problem is you do projects like that, and you're just always beholden to the partner who's always changing things, and you lose control of the product. You become just a service bureau, like adding features that some some functionary inside the big company wants, you know? But at the same so, time, that's where the users are. They're, you have to do that. Yeah. Right. I'm, that's, that's product manager arrogance is what I'm saying. Is like I'm wrong to think that because I can't get nearly as many users as they could. Uh, and and that was then proven. So so what happened? We got to a couple hundred thousand on our own. We felt good about that, but it became obvious we have got to get partnerships if we're going to get to millions of users to get the scale for this thing. Because then we can get better feeds from you know like the movie companies and 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 rock. Uh, what was the band one? Rockpool. Um, yeah, there were all sorts of sources of data, and you know to get their attention, you needed to be big. So. Um, uh, so we started talking aggressively to InfoSeek, as I mentioned, and, and all these portals to say, we'll be your calendar. We can relabel it like so, and it'll look like your calendar, but it'll still benefit from being part of the big network. And uh, But we were having trouble getting a good deal because you know, they either want to own you completely. They don't really want to share. Nobody wants to share their users with some startup that's going to go do their own thing with it. They wanted mm -hmm. to own you outright, and we didn't want to do that. So that you play this game of, we'll do a deal, but it's a one-year deal, and 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 we've shared ownership of the users if we break up and all that sort of thing. Um, but it was I think we were getting a little discouraged. We weren't finding a good deal, uh, and our growth was good but not so good that we were going to make it on our own. And I think it was Kevin <clears throat> Harvey on the board. He's like, you know, you ought to go back to Netscape again and talk to Mike Mike Homer. Um, you know, Kevin didn't say a ton of things on the board meetings, but almost everything he said, if you just wrote it down and did it, it was a good idea. And and he just knew that the, the Netscape was coming around and thinking we've got to make our portals, we've got to make NetCenter much stickier. And so we we knew the Netscape people, but they had rebuffed us. Uh, but we went back again, and I think Kevin had spoken for us too to say you need to see these guys. And so we had a great meeting with Mike Homer and showed him when and how it evolved and where it was going. And he said, like, all right, all right let's do it. And he was super decisive and quick. And 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 his team then you know set about integrating it into NetCenter. So we had a deal with NetCenter, and I think we had like a million and a half users like in two weeks, sort of thing. You know, as soon as it turned on, it was a fire hose. Um, and right, we and were... and we should say uh, because if you uh, listeners are confused, this is a time period when Netscape realizes that it has it has a portal sort of by accident, That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so they're, it, they're, yeah. they're monetizing it for the first time with NetCenter. Yeah, as you may have heard from other histories, like. You know, they put up these portals of search engines, and then they realized they had all these users showing up there. They might as well have them give them something to do and some reason to come back. And email was one of the reasons to come back and remains that. Uh, and calendars was just part of that same suite. Um, and so Netscape, uh, yeah, and, and they had all this traffic going to just the page that's the default page, you know, on their browser. Maybe and launched realized, the browser, right, yeah. Right, so there was this, suddenly that was the portal wars. There was, every, everyone wanted to have a better portal. Yahoo felt like the smartest. They had email quickly, and they already had a calendar, and you could do my Yahoo, and it just was the most customizable, fun one to play with. Um, Google wasn't around yet, um, and... Uh, AltaVista and others just weren't moving as quickly. But InfoSeek, Excite, and, and Netscape, and Yahoo were kind of on it. And so those were the guys we were visiting. Um, so Netscape called their thing NetCenter. Uh, 
and and they decided to add a calendar. And like I say, you know, even with we, it's not like we were front page center. They had lots of other things on the Netsate center homepage, but just with the placement they had, we had millions of users very quickly. And so I was fully converted to the distribution deal <laughs> importance at that point. Mm-hmm. And, Realize that you know better mousetrap doesn't always win by itself. And what's um, the what's the nature of the deal? Is it a rev share? Or are they? Yeah. Okay. It was a rev share on future advertising, but they weren't even going to advertise for a while. But it would they would have done the ad sales. I think we could have done our own as well because we knew we could sell ads um, targeted to people that had particular interests. One of the cool things about the calendar is I'm going to know that you like whatever the 49ers or Radiohead or whatever your interests are. Um, uh, and and certain certain bands and music and so on. The thinking was we could get targeted advertising for that. We were probably way ahead of the market. Right. There's too. there's the obvious social component popping its head yeah. out there. Yeah. It just the world wasn't. And and when we did go explain this to ad people too, because that was part of our you know efforts is like let's see what, you know what kind of cool new ads we can get. They just their eyes would glaze over. They just weren't ready for the something. They were still dealing with banner ads in general and much less targeted ones that would go after people that liked you know the 49ers. Um, but but uh, Netscape fortunately you know had an ad sales team and they could they could um, uh, sell the ads against the, uh, the the calendar and so they they were very happy with the deal and then in no, I think just a few months later this is '98 they were bought by AOL in November of '98 right um, so that was probably two months after we launched NetCenter uh, the calendar maybe one even and we thought uh oh they're gonna blow up Netscape or change everything, but it actually turned out to be a great thing because very soon, you know, after AOL acquired Netscape, uh, they, they wanted to take over NetCenter, and, and the NetCenter team said, hey, if you're going to make a calendar, you ought to talk to these WEN people. We have a good deal with them. We've just signed it. Their stuff scales. Our engineers like them. You should use it. And so the AOL engineers then descended on us, and, you know, we were all written in Oracle and uh, our own code. They were all Sybase and their own code, and so there was just a very a, a lot of engineering machismo there around. Like, can this thing scale? You guys don't even know what scaling is. Um, uh, AOL's volume is enormous, and but but our guys impressed them enough. Uh, our team, you know, had done good work and made it really scalable, and they bought it and, and as they should because it worked. Um, mm-hmm. they, they they decided to acquire us. So suddenly we got a call. Not to do a deal, but what we were expecting was AOL would say, "Oh, we'll do a deal too with your calendar." We were, I think, Barry Schuler called up, um, or David, I think it was Barry Schuler, and said, "You know, we're interested in not in partnering. We, we don't want to do an arm's length deal. We would want to buy the company." And so suddenly, that was that was probably that probably would have been like January or March, February of of '99. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so suddenly, you know, we were having our own little strategy meetings about what do we do next. And suddenly, the meetings were about, uh oh, what if? Or no, w- would this be good? Would would we consider selling ourselves? And if so, what's a good number that would make it make sense? And and so then we went into the sort of fear greed debate about right. do you keep going on your own and try to be a billion dollar company, or is there some number where you would say, boy, that's as much as we'll ever be worth on our own? And we did. We, to the credit of the team, we were nice and calm about this, and we kind of ran through some scenarios. And I think we decided, like, you know, if, if they offer us over $100 million, that's a, that's, mm. we'll all do well, we'll be proud of what we've done here, and kind of the expected value of everything else we could think of doing is probably not much higher than that, you know. Um, yes, we could be worth a billion, but that's less than a 10% chance. So, 
you do the math, you know. Well, and uh, also you you're you haven't been able to create that that mass scale audience on your own. You're you're the the main problem is is you're dependent on these other players for your yeah. audience, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I think yeah, the, the, in the pro category of, like, we could pull it off, we still had feature ideas and things that made us think we could make it bigger on our own. But you're right. Uh, we knew that we were we knew we were a feature. And there was a lot of articles about at the time about, like, company, people building companies and people building features. And the calendar was a feature of something else, no doubt. Uh, you know, we could stand alone, but, but we knew it made sense as part of something else. And we were product people, so we were proud to have built a really good feature. We didn't care about that debate so much. Um, and, uh, you know, we had watched some spectacular failures. I think PointCast had blown up at that point. Right. Um, PointCast was invincible, and it was worth a billion dollars, and that was the coolest company in the world to me, you know, early in the Internet, because it looked flashy, and it ran everywhere, and it was just suddenly growing and pointed the way to all this, you know, on-demand information. Uh, and they held on to go public, and they and they had several buyout offers, and they didn't take them. So that was a good cautionary tale I was aware of. Um, and so we convinced ourselves, okay, we'll we'll take it if if the offer comes in and it's you know um, reasonable, then then let's consider it. Um, and it did. They they I mean they called back. We were put through the ringer. They had this guy David Coburn that was kind of famous for he wore cowboy boots. He was very gruff and intimidating. And I was terrified of them just because of what I'd read about them. But it so happens right when they were trying to buy us, they were also trying to buy CBS. Mm-hmm, so they were mm-hmm. so busy with that that we got – he was out of energy by the time he came to beat me up. <laughs> so I think I got the softer side of Coburn. And, and Schuler liked us for whatever reason. And so they were they were pretty kind to us and didn't you know put us through the ringer. Their lawyers did a bit, and um, and that was intimidating. But but ultimately they made an offer. I think it was like $150 million or something was uh-huh. their offer. Uh, cash, cash like, only, or cash and stock? Stock. It was, stock. Okay. It was almost all stock, but their right. stock was like right, right. gold at the time. It was felt invincible. It was unbe- hard to believe now, but you know, AOL was like the gold standard, and and 150 was you know higher than our big number, and we're like, okay, let's take it. And and the truth is, by the time the papers got done, it was like 225 million because their stock kept rising. So it looks like we sold for even more, but still, it was a crazy number. I think later. Um, uh, uh, Kool Aid or something got bought for a hundred million or some huge brand, and you know I just thought that's that's that is that's the internet <laughs> happening. <laughs> On the other hand, I mean I I never felt none of us felt like well this is a racket and we're just getting out you know with our at the last second it's all going to crash. Like we were growing and mm-hmm. we were had other people that wanted to do deals with us, and then as soon as AOL signed and made us their calendar, they did a deal big deal with Coca Cola. And they got, I don't know, $10 million in revenue that year just to put against calendars. That's mm-hmm. how big the deals AOL was getting. And with their multiple on stock, we were worth more than, like, we brought them more revenue, uh, more, you know, market cap than they spent on us. It, you right. could at least rationalize it from, you know, financially. Um, but I was aware these were big numbers. Well, and, and you so, know, I, it's a point yeah. that I've made before on, on the show is that, um, we only remember historically, uh, you know, the, the 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 crazy IPOs and things like that. But yeah. I, I've said before that part of what led to the the bubble and the dot com mania was there was there there were the portal wars. There was the sense that you know the big players needed to put together a you know a, a tool belt of of various items to yeah. create their portals. Same thing for AOL is trying to compete with the web, so they yeah. they, 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 they so you you and others like you. Um, you know, today a startup thinks you you IPO or you get bought by Facebook or you know right. whoever. Well, that existed in this time period, and, right. and and the big players were Yahoo, AOL, Excite, exactly. that sort of thing. 
it didn't feel any different in the sense that there was M&A was an option or go public. I think now we've had more history of hearing stories. I mean, as you say, it's kind of like only the, the history's written by the victors or whatever. So all we hear about is the, all the home runs that became public or got bought for a lot of money. But since I was there in the trenches and had lots of friends in startups, I was aware of all the failures too, like PointCast or you know people that raised a lot of money and couldn't make things happen. And so it wasn't such an obvious, you know, it, it, we had a plenty of fear to motivate us, I guess, you know, that this could go away. Uh, and, and so we'd be, you know, happy to be part of a, a bigger company. And, and I also do, I also believe it's not a crazy strategy for big companies to buy feature companies because they're buying a motivated bunch of engineers, uh, a very focused team and, and something that's ready to go. And, and that's often better than what you can do internally for some sad reason. You know, AOL had been trying to build its own calendar for at least a year using tools from Sun when we when they bought us because we heard this later and they just couldn't get it working and it was clunky and there was a lot of bureaucracy and you know companies get in their own way whereas startups that's all they're doing and so you could we definitely gave them a six month if not a two-year lead on you know building a calendar we, we once we were acquired by AOL they I think there were 17 million people using our calendar within you know six months or something uh, it's you know enormous number of people were using our product mm-hmm. uh, and and so you know we we built a robust scalable feature that they themselves have had trouble building. So anyway, I felt I felt good about the whole transaction and and you know I knew the internet thing valuations were crazy. I had no reference point for that, but but I didn't feel like you know we, we were it was some kind of a racket or something you know. No, like that same year really... you know um, uh, broadcast.com is five billion. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, 150 million. That's right. We were relatively small. I mean, these are giant numbers. When I was at TF Magic, I remember the goal of the company was to go public and be worth 100 million. So that number was in my head as a young uh, startup person. And so I just thought, wow, that's the best you can do. And then if you're offered more than that for an acquisition and uh, life's even simpler, then it made perfect sense. So yeah, I, um, I, w- I was glad. Uh, I was happy with our exit. And I figured, oh, we'll do more of these things in the future. Like life goes on. And um, and so AOL, uh, should I? Go through the AOL yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to be sensitive to to your time, but I, if you do have the time, um, I, I would love to hear. So you join AOL in uh, early '99, middle of '99. So this is right when AOL is the colossus of the late stage dot yeah. com era. Yeah. Okay. So so tell me about what AOL is like when you when you join up. Um, well, uh, so Tony and I joined, and most of the company joined, and we moved into the Netscape offices in Mountain View. Uh, happily for Joe and James, AOL didn't want a marketing or a biz dev person. They just wanted engineering and product management. So they were let go, which they were happy to be let go because then they vested. So um, Tony and I joined AOL, and uh, at first it felt just like joining Netscape because that's physically where we were. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we started having to fly out to um, Dallas, Dallas yeah. uh, to, to visit AOL. And, yeah, it felt it, they had gigantic offices there. Um, you know, their own kind of corporate park, and uh, it did feel like you were visiting, I don't know, the, the Gondor or something, or just some giant uh, enterprise um, uh, out, uh, outpost that you'd never heard of out here on the West Coast. But um, they, they felt it felt they felt arrogant, I guess, was true. I definitely, they felt, because they were the masters of the universe at that point. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting, because coming from the West Coast, we were disparaging of AOL. It's a goofy, no, bad product that yeah, you use. Yeah, I wanted you to know. say that. there was I, I always had the sense from the time period that 
uh, Silicon Valley always looked down on AOL people, yeah. and AOL people knew that. Like, so they were a little uh, kind of defensive. They had a chip on their shoulder. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. They did. Yeah. All they did was, you know, e- broadcast email disks to everybody. That was the kind of the joke, and they're just spamming the world with their crappy software, and it's for grandma who doesn't know how to get on the internet, and it's a racket. Um, and I'd say I got a little more grudging respect for them having got there. I, you know, I realized. Okay, they have made it usable to grandma. That's good, um, first of all. And um, and a sad realization, though, for me is I thought, well, they must really know the consumer. You know, if I go out there, I'm going to learn there. They must have an amazing consumer research department and really have a grip on that. And they may have had that department, but I never met those people. My impression was uh, that there was a there was a fair amount of luck in what had happened from where I sat. Um, uh, they weren't that ruthlessly studying their customer. They uh, they had a couple really smart managers like Barry Schuler and 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 um, Steve Case and others and they'd made some good decisions. They were smart people, but the challenge I think just as an organization and this is a problem probably for a lot of companies getting acquired. You get acquired by a company that grew really fast. The people in charge of it, I think, probably feel like, wow, we must be making good decisions because look how fast we're growing. So every decision needs to be run through them. So it's not fun to work there because if you're working on a new project, like a new version of the calendar or whatever, it doesn't get approved until you meet some high-level VP and they approve it. You could waste all your time negotiating with your peers, but all the, all the decisions are made way up high. There was not a lot of pushing decisions down. Um, and that felt – that was not fun. Coming from Silicon Valley, it was soul-crushing. And unfortunately, I think it's a circular problem. If you treat your middle managers like they're dumb, you will end up with dumb middle managers because the good ones will leave. And I think that was a challenge. That was an AOL problem that they had a small group of really smart people trying to run this giant thing that was growing so fast. They couldn't possibly make, continue making smart decisions, you know, up there at the top. And so it felt, uh, you know, it felt like the military or something, like a very command and control, top-down decision-making. Not a fun place compared to Apple or Silicon Valley, kind of grim. Uh, grim but determined, and 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 they had plenty of fear. AOL, as you said, had a chip on its shoulder, um, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't a fun place to hang out. I didn't enjoy going out there. I felt like I was it was like a movie. It was like Office Space or something. Lots of slides and presenting and going through meetings, and and so that was starting to crush my soul. I, I worked on the calendar for a while, uh, then Tony took it over and ran the calendar group, and I moved on to kind of doing other projects like you've got pictures and. Uh, AOL shop at AOL, the mm-hmm. wallet. So mm-hmm. I got to see other parts of AOL, but I, I, I wasn't, I never found like these people really care about the customer like Apple people did. I felt like the, the, they were just, they really were, were spamming the world with their discs and it was kind of working. So that disheartened me and I thought, I, I don't have much more to learn here and uh, I'm getting even grayer. Uh, so I've, I got to get out of here. Um, so I left by, I was there for two years, I think, a year and a half. I left mm-hmm. in, in 2000. One, well, so. you know, um, I, you, if if you don't mind, um, the other AOL people I've spoken to are sort of the the big names, so that they have the legacy to defend. Um, you're kind of an outsider, so if you'll indulge me, you yeah. were there when the merger is announced and and begins to take place. That's right. Yeah. What yeah, right. within AOL, um, from the others that you heard, maybe from the long timers that were there. What was the feeling about that when they announced we're going to merge with Time Warner? Um, were people freaked out about it? Were people like, "Okay, great, we're safe now"? What, what was from your recollection? I didn't, I didn't have a feel. I didn't. 
I wasn't aware in the trenches that anyone was worried that we needed a harbor, a safe harbor. Uh, it seemed like a victory, you know, to, to everyone I was around. Like, this is going to be big, and now we've got, we're so big, we're going to own television and cable and everything else, and there's all sorts of synergy opportunities. This will be fun. Um, people were excited about it, as, as I recall, uh, that we're in the trenches. I think then they quickly realized, like, the politics were scary, that, that Time Warner right, was right. divided into all these fiefdoms, and you couldn't get anything done, and and good luck with that. And so that was that was happening toward the end of my tenure there. And then the Internet started crashing. You know, the, the whole right. bubble started bursting at the same time. That's where fear started to show up. I think, I assume the top managers knew the end was coming and they were engineering that deal. But where I sat in the trenches, I don't know, it didn't feel like the world was coming apart and we needed to find a safe harbor. Hmm. I, I don't think I've rewritten that history in my mind. <laughs> I think that's that's what I recall. Um, in fact, I remember when I decided to leave, I felt obliged to say something to my team, which was the shop at AOL group. So right. I, I was tr trying not to be a Cassandra, but I was, I just, I had other friends at other startups. They weren't able to raise money anymore. Um, you know, people weren't getting the, the, I think ad, ad prices were crashing. I was just hearing enough scary stuff that I just started saying to people, um, you know, if you've got other options or <laughs> we should, it's, it's, things are going to get tough. And I was ultimately right. I don't. I'm not like Nostradamus or something, but I, I, I could feel that it was coming uh, when that, a little bit later, a little after the acquisition. Right. Well, I, uh, this will be in the interest of time. Um, yeah. In the next decade or so after you leave AOL, you, you're with several you know different companies and startups and stuff. If I could just hit on two of them, and then and then we'll ask. Um, uh, talk about what you're doing nowadays, which I believe is in VR. So, um, sure. I, I believe um, 2003, 2004, maybe um, you get involved with Ophoto, which was that already a part of Kodak? It was when I, yeah, James Joaquin was a co-founder of When went off to. He became president of Ophoto. He'd been an investor and had joined, and and so he asked. I took a couple years off when my kids were young, and and I, uh, the internet wasn't very fun, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and maybe two years. I was helping startups and things, but I wasn't uh, running anything. And James sort of called me out of retirement. Hey, we need someone to help with product management. We're trying to do all these new specialty products. Can you help out? So I thought, well, I'll see if I can still work and <laughs> if it's still fun. And, and I know these people and I like photos. So mm -hmm. I joined there, even though they'd already been acquired. Mm -hmm. um, but they were very independent. Kodak was leaving them alone. That, so that was an acquisition that at the time felt great because we were on the West Coast and Kodak was in Rochester and they were leaving us to do our own thing. Um, the bummer there, the last six months, is Kodak finally started saying, okay, we better find out what these Ophoto people are doing. This is our digital strategy. Yeah, okay, and, that, and, that's, that's what I want to ask nightmare. you. Uh, yeah. This is, this is um, uh, we haven't gotten to this in the chronology and won't for a while, so I haven't done any research on this yet. But everyone knows the, the story of um, music and how it had to adapt to the, the Internet coming and disrupting its business. Uh, but I don't know a lot about um, <laughs> things like Kodak and the coming of digital photography and, and all that stuff. And so this is very open-ended, but um, like, tell, tell me about that from, from what you were sure. able to witness at Ophoto. Um, and, and I'd really recommend if you haven't talked to James, James Joaquin would be a good, he's a good historian in general. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he'll tell, he could tell you the whole story in more detail. But um, yeah, it felt, uh, I joined, it still felt invincible. It was 29 cent prints. People were still printing their photos. At the time, it was sort of a you know a side business to the core of you know going to Walgreens to get your photos, um, but then uh, the, the cameras just kept getting better, of course, right? Higher resolution, 
um, uh, good enough that you could just keep them photos on your phone. So as the mobile phone started to become a camera, the wheels were coming off right there, and it wasn't obvious right away because you know people always things sometimes take longer than you'd think. But what I've heard from people who knew what was going on at Kodak is they knew the end was coming. They had done one of the first digital cameras, in fact. They knew that there was going to be a massive transition. They just were surprised about how, how quickly it came when it did come. They thought it would be a slower transition than it was, and it was sudden. It was very, like, all of a sudden nobody wanted prints anymore, uh, and 29 cents seemed like too much, or why am I bothering printing this? I'll just send you a SM, uh, you know, a MMS on my phone. Um, okay, and, I see. Because the snarky thing to say is, well, this is blatantly obvious. Once digital comes around, film is going to go away. And so you, the, the snarky thing to say is, well, how could you be so stupid not to see that? But what you're saying is, is they saw it, they just thought they had more time. Yeah, I would say to their credit, I think they're, they're, they, were, they did not have their heads in the sand. They knew it was coming. Um, but, but no one was, you know... I, I, I think this is always the case when a massive transition like this comes along. Imagine the, the, the management team of Kodak saying to the shareholders, you know what, the world's going to change completely. We're going to be one-fifth the size we were, more profitable, but really small. Is that okay with you? Mm-hmm. The shareholders say, get me another CEO that won't say that. Right. You know? And so you end up saying what they want to hear, unfortunately. And, and that, in that sense, I think in private conversations, everyone would say the end is coming, but but we don't know when it's coming, so I'd be stupid not to keep these fabs going and making lots of film and, and doing all the deals we've been doing. And, and people could dream that, well, maybe you'll just take even more photos and you'll still need to print them. And, and, some, and, and they thought they could capture some of that, that somehow you would, we would get a piece of the MMS revenue or something so, so that we were still enjoying some piece of, of the photography revenue stream. But you know, it went away. they couldn't add enough value to things like MMS to make it make sense, all their chemical technology wasn't relevant in the digital realm, so they really struggled to find any any value they could add to what was happening. Um, but yeah, they weren't as stupid as people might might say. I, I had respect for the Kodak people I met. Um, they'd just been doing the same thing for a long time, and 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 had nobody seen the transition quite this fast happen. So. Yeah, when you're a, when you're a hundred year old company, it's the your yeah. your time frame is a little different. Yeah, versus yeah, my father had worked there at Rochester, so it, it had a lot of history. I felt yeah. like it, you know this, these guys aren't going away, and I thought it would be exciting to help them make the transition, and instead it was kind of depressing. <laughs> um, yeah. so the other the other one I wanted to ask you about is a more recent one, which was Byliner. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I was very interested in this company, and I, and I I just I I don't have any specific questions, but um, tell me about the idea, and tell me about how it evolved, and and um, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's um, it started out as kind of an opportunity to you know pe- people are people are moving to digital reading, uh, and John Taman, who founded Byliner, I was really kind of helping him raise money and kind of helping him sharpen the plan. Um, expected I'd just be an advisor, and, and ultimately I was COO. So it really, you know, um, I was kind of helping him realize something that that I've worried about for a while. Like people are still going to read, aren't they? And it, but there'll still be money to be made somehow in the new way that we read, even if we stop reading books and right. magazines as we have. And and uh, he identified the the singles category as an interesting opportunity, like a new way to sell books, far less expensive. None of the publishing inventory you have to worry about, um, you know, like glorified New Yorker articles, you know, is about the right length for the people, shorter attention span. Right. Um, and so the Kindle single category was coming along. John had a lot of relationships with really good authors like John Krakauer and Amy Tan and others. And they were all looking, uh, they were all willing to um, 
and able to publish things sometimes outside of their pu normal publishing deals that they had if it was in this other category of a Kindle single and it was only digital. So, so we set ourselves up as a digital publishing company um, to do singles, uh, these short form uh, books or long form articles uh, that you could buy for $1.99. And um, and the big question here was like, how, okay, you got to sell a lot of them to make this work. <laughs> What's the volume going to be like? And right. in a new ma new category. So I, I was COO and trying to model everything and just trying to figure out the best analogies. And you know, our hope was we could, you know, why wouldn't you sell a million of uh, uh, John Krakauer's new book, uh, Three Cups of Tea, sold you know tens of millions, and this is a book about three cups of tea. Um, he wrote called Three Cups of Deceit. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But ultimately, so. We, we were a publisher. We signed up with Amazon for distribution because they really did, uh, you know, own the the market for digital readers uh, and reading, um, and uh, and got some great authors and got several books out. I'd say the market is still it's still too early though. People haven't switched their behavior to reading singles. It's too mm -hmm. the volumes weren't in the millions. Uh, it was good, but not so good that that we could just be self-sustaining. That was kind of the hope is this, we could almost bootstrap this thing. Um, but uh, it's still early. People are still changing their behavior and realizing, oh, I can buy a book for $1.99, and it's not like a remainder. It's actually a whole great book, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and it's the right size. Um, but that's a behavior change, and those take a while. And so um, we did great, had some great books out, and we're you know, one of the top uh, publishers of, of, of these Kindle singles, but it still wasn't enough to make it self-sustaining. And so another idea that was... Um, uh, Developed with the help of our angels and, and John and others was to um, build um, a, a subscription service. So you could just subscribe to John Krakauer or Christopher Hitchens at the time or whoever you loved and get their stories wherever they appeared, which is also, I think, a great idea in the long run. People are starting to understand who writers are enough to, to know they want to read every, you know, Malcolm Gladwell piece, even if it's in Slate or whatever. Right, follow the writer um, around, yeah. Yeah, follow the, like, fans of writers, just like people follow bands. Yeah. Um, and so we built a service to enable that. Um, that was part of the original vision of Byliner, and we decided, you know, we're not going to make it on Kindle singles alone. Let's accelerate this program and got lots of deals with writers and 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 built a subscription service that uh, is still around and was acquired by Vook. I haven't looked lately, mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, took a bit too much. Too more resources were required to really make that to have the patience to really wait for that transition to happen for people to get to the place where that's how they read. Possibly, um, possibly another thing that's maybe five, ten years too early. Maybe. It could be. It could <laughs> yeah. be too early. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a good idea. Like we built a quality product. Uh, the writers. We're happy with how we presented them and all yeah, that, but sometimes yeah. you just—it's just too early for for you know people's behavior. And unfortunately, I do think you know people have so much to read right now; it's coming at them uh, from a million different places, and so they're not looking for yet another way to to catch up on a writer. They're they're already overwhelmed. So right, right. I, I don't think it's solving. Unfortunately, it's not solving the problem people have right now. Um, but I do think we'll reach a point where you subscribe to writers. That's going to happen. I, uh, I there agree. There will be more yeah. singles. So, so yeah, I'd chalk that one up to t timing, and you just can't know unless sometimes you just try something. Um, and and so I, uh, and I'm sorry it's not the biggest company yet, but uh, I think that we help start something that will still ultimately prevail. Well, all right, let's 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 wrap up finally by saying, what are you doing today? Are you, you is it Bar Barnett Labs that that is? Yeah, Barnett market? Labs is just you know my moniker for me uh, mm -hmm. experimenting mm -hmm. with things and trying to figure out what the next most exciting thing to do is. I've you know, the last few years, um, 
just taking more jobs, you know, helping startups or at bigger companies. Um, but uh, because I hadn't really seen things I was excited about, and now I'm just I'm excited again, and it's, I think it's some something to do with what's in the air, just gadgets and VR, and it just feels like a bunch of new technologies, uh, um, the the quantified self stuff. These are all things I'm I'm experimenting with, but the mm-hmm. thing I'm spending the most time on is is VR and Unity, um, and uh, a project right now that's kind of like a, a 3D Wikipedia called Time Walk yeah. um, that I'm, I'm just building a pilot to kind of use Unity to, to, as a VR experience, be able to walk through historical locations like towns as they were, San Francisco in 1906, uh, Mill Valley in 1915, um, you know, go back in time, basically. Uh-huh. So um, uh, I've, I've got the whole process and all the tools to go to build that and uh, I'm building a pilot of that right now, and I'm just trying to see, like, is this exciting enough that I can use this to make games or license the the the, um, the cities to game companies, or is this something, you know, uh, historical societies are going to want to use? Like, I'm, I'm just trying to figure it out, but I'm starting with my instinct, which is that there's something great here. Unity is really powerful. I think the VR stuff is... I don't know which goggles are going to win, but some, something right, right. like it will be out there. I don't think it's going to be, you know, it's not going to be ginormous as a category, but it's going to be big enough and influential enough that I want to stay in it. I think it's the next generation of kind of filmmaking, like movies are going to be these experiences you walk into. Or I, I, I wonder, level. you know, like when, when Facebook buys Oculus and things like that, on some level are people seeing like this is the next generation of, of, of the digital medium? Like, not that yeah. this is what the web evolves into, but... Like this is the next generation of that sort of a digital experience. Is that what people like you are seeing? I think they are saying that. I I don't know if it's quite that big, but I, but definitely that you know is it. On the other hand, it's not 3D TV. That was a false mm-hmm. promise. You know, not so exciting. Nor is it like you know portable computing. It, but it is. I think it's a way you're going to experience games and and ultimately when these things get small enough and they're built into your glasses, it's just you know an overlay on the world, augmented reality. And if that's informed by 3D data about the world around you, then that can create a really great experience. So, uh, for Facebook, I don't know why they spent quite that much money, but I, I, I assume you know they can build great environments. You could you could chat with your friends in your old college dorm room or something, you know, or, right, yeah. or meet your family back at the house you lived in when you were 12, and all sorts of interesting new places to be. Uh, it's essentially you know we're building the Snow Crash metaverse. Uh, I, and, yeah, and... I, I was gonna say I, I say to people all the time, um, what tech always does is try to follow Star Trek or William Gibson, and yeah, you know, right. listen, that, that's uh, I guess people have always wanted to just uh, jack in like in, in Neuromancer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 and I've I've seen enough exciting. The technology has reached a point where it's it's not hard to build really compelling models. I'm really interested in what you can do with character animation and 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 uh the tools there and and so i'm that's what i'm exploring right now i'm trying to figure out like where's the startup in this is it building a layer to sell the tools or is it actually to build content or be like a next gen studio or um i'm 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 experimenting with that and this is just like when i built the calendar for when.com i was fussing around with it with my friends it was something i personally wanted and then I figure out wh- wh- where's the market opportunity. I, if I'm completely mercenary and I just look for the biggest dollar market opportunity, I'll be building, I don't know, some widget that ties onto Twitter or something. And mm-hmm. I'm, I guess at this point in my career, I want to do things that I care about emotionally. And, and with that passion, that'll carry you through all the hard parts of doing a startup. And if it's just a, you know, if it's just, I just want to be a billion dollar company, 
that's not uh, that's not compelling enough for me at least um, because first of all I know how hard it is to actually make that happen uh, it's not realistic uh, and and you'll end up doing something you don't care about and that's you need to care about it to to do the weekends and the nights and the hard meetings and all that stuff so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm casting around for which you know which thing is the right thing to focus on for the next few years and I'm I'm excited because I think there's a lot of cool stuff in, in in all these categories as I said quantified self and VR and and, and even the Arduino Raspberry Pi gadgets. I'm doing mm. experiments in all these areas uh, uh, with, with some smart friends and, and trying to figure out what's next. So, Well, excellent. I mean, Ted Barnett, that, that was such a fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate you walking us through you know, almost all of these eras and, and, and how sure. it all ties together through one career. It's, it was Yeah, fascinating. I feel like Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. of, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yes, well, thank you. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.